Those of us who know a little bit more about Buddhism know that the Buddha was fond of lists. I find this very reassuring. Living in the United States of America in 2016, I was raised by two parents that listed endlessly everything and anything. My guess is, is that the first time I put a pencil to the paper, it was probably a list. Um, lists make it easier to remember things. And of course, the teachings that were passed down to us were originally passed down in the oral tradition. So when we have lists, I go, oh, okay. Here's a few things. Let's see if we can remember the bullet points. One of the lesser known lists that the Buddha taught was a list of five things that wake us up. And when I first heard that there was a list that was basically called five things that wake us up, I got excited. I thought, only five. <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe there's hope for me. <laughs> I wonder what the five are. And then, of course, this tells you a little bit about how my mind works. I started making up my own list of five things that might wake me up. So we'll be reflecting tonight on the traditional list, but I thought I'd just give you a couple of my favorites of the first things that popped into my mind. Because for some of us, it'll be about one of the things on this list. And for some of us, we'll walk out of here not remembering one thing on this list, but maybe you'll remember, oh, there are things that could wake me up. And that's quite enough. So one of the first things that popped into my mind was cold showers definitely wake me up. Now, some people like cold showers, some people don't like cold showers. Uh, I've had the opportunity in the last few years to live for short periods of time in countries and in situations where hot water wasn't available, so I've gotten to know cold showers in a different way than I did before uh, these experiences. And so what I know about them is that whether you like them or don't like them, that first flash of cold water really wakes us up. How? We're right there in the present in our bodies. I'm sure if you take a cold shower every, way, every day, you've figured out a way to think about what you're going to do tomorrow while you're taking that cold shower. <laughs> <laughs> but the first moment of water, it wakes us up. It wakes us up to here, to the experience of the body, and the story cease, at least for a moment. All of the qualities that are in the Buddhist list have this piece. Another example that came to mind, I'd like to invite you to think of someone that you know really well. Maybe that you know them well enough that sometimes you feel like you could complete their sentences for them. And the people that we know really well like that, that probably we could complete their sentences for them, we tend to have a habit with that, which is not fully listening, because we know what they're going to say next. I had a situation recently where somebody I know very well like that, and we were having one of those conversations that we've had many times before. They said this, and I said this, and they said this, and I said this, and I was completely in the flow of what they were going to say next, and I knew what it was going to be, and they said something completely different. And I did a double take. Who is this person before me? They actually expanded beyond the box of who I take them to be 
in that moment. And it was a wake-up call to actually allow them to be able to inhabit the largeness of their human expression in more moments than just the wake-up call. When we allow that for other people, there's the potential then that we will also have that kind of experience for ourselves, right? So those two are not on the list from the Buddha. Here's a list from the Buddha. Five things that lead to awakening. The first thing that the Buddha suggested would help support leading to awakening are having admirable friends. The second thing that he suggested was celebrating our basic integrity. The third is hearing the Dhamma. And this could refer to the teachings of the Buddha and the way that we are reinterpreting them in this culture at this time, but also being on the lookout. The word Dhamma means truth. So we can be on the lookout for the truth in all situations. Sometimes it's translated as the truth of how we understand it. We can be on the lookout to support our waking up. The fourth quality that supports us waking up is called wise effort. And it's not referring to the type A over-striving, over-efforting that many of us are quite skilled in. It's referring to how we cultivate helpful qualities and transform unhelpful qualities. And the fifth thing that leads to awakening, according to the Buddha, is being in harmony with the truth of impermanence or change. Obviously, there are many other things that lead to awakening. This is just one list. But given that we have just this period of time, it's probably good that there are just five things. Otherwise, we'd be here all night. Maybe for the next week, we could all come up with the different things that wake us up. And that might be a wonderful conversation to have with one of your spiritual friends at another time and really improv. So firstly, admirable friendship. The Buddha suggested this was a prerequisite for awakening. And uh, this is a quote from one of his teachings. If practitioners who are members of other traditions should happen to ask you, what friend are the prerequisites for the development of the wings to self-awakening? You should answer thus. There is the case where a practitioner has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. This is the first prerequisite for the development of the wings of self-awakening. So the, f- so the first prerequisite. Obviously, if we don't have the privilege right now of being completely surrounded by admirable friends, there is hope. There are other things. But let's talk about admirable friends. Maybe first we reflect on friends that haven't been so helpful in our lives. Uh, I'm sure some of us, myself included, have had friends, especially when we were younger, right, who we always seem to get in trouble with. When I was much younger, I had a group of friends like that. Just inevitably, we got together and trouble was this close. Maybe we fast forward a few years and we're in a work situation and there's that colleague where every time they're around them, we just seem to gossip. Who starts it? Hard to say. But we really enjoy having a good gossip together. Okay? 
These things happen. So continuing from the Buddha, the friend who appropriates, the friend who renders lip service, the friend who overflatters, the friend who brings ruin, these are not helpful friends. Okay. So the premise of the resource of admirable friendship is that when we can, when we do have a choice, and we don't always have a choice, but when we do, we can choose to cultivate friendships that bring out admirable qualities, you know, that support us to grow, that support us to see clearly. Then there's the times when we can't. You know, we've got this friendship, we've been friends for 20 years, and yeah, they got that habit, and we know it's not skillful, and guess what? We've got those habits too. And we hold each other in our wholeness, and we bring out our basic integrity, which is the second quality, to help support them in things that maybe haven't transformed yet. So we're not saying only look for people that are admirable and avoid people who aren't because there isn't anybody that's either one. It's like how do we bring out the quality of admirable friendship in each other? How do we be an admirable friend to ourselves? So at the beginning I told you that my first introduction to Spirit Rock Meditation Center was a Monday night about 25 years ago. And I was 18 years old. It was a time when 18-year-olds were not meditating. Meditation was not cool. Mindfulness was not mainstream. Somehow, I ended up here, which is a story in and of itself, which would take too long to tell. I ended up here. And somebody greeted me when I got here. I remember that I sat right there. And somebody greeted me. And they said, oh, I haven't seen you here before. It was much smaller back then. Are you new? And, and I was quite shy. I, I wasn't used to environments like this. I wasn't sure if I fit in. You know, I didn't exactly look age-wise like everybody else. And I sort of said something. I don't remember what. And this man continued to engage me in a very gentle way. And at the end, he said, I'm glad you're here. And I showed up again soon after, and he was here again. Oh, his name is John. I bet he still comes here. He may even be here tonight. He's a local. He said, oh, you're back. I'm really glad you're back. And we started making this connection. Most of the friends that I had in my immediate circle uh, were mostly engaged in things that I would now say were you know, not so skillful. And so even though this gentleman was probably twice my age, you could say we didn't have a lot in common. We actually developed this friendship and ended up taking walks together in Woodacre and, and talking about meditation. And he had been doing it longer than I had. And he was very kind. And I still think of him. I still wish him well. From the Buddha, the friend who is a helpmate the friend in happiness and in woe, the friend who gives good counsel, the friend who sympathizes too. These four as friends the wise behold and cherish them devotedly as a mother does her own child. So there's a famous story from the time of the Buddha that concerns the Buddha's cousin Ananda. The Buddha had several cousins 
Some of his cousins he had easier and better relationships with than others. I find this kind of reassuring. It's not as if the Buddha had easy relationships with all of his family members. So we can relax and realize that we also might not always have easy relationships with all of our family members all the time. But with Ananda, he had a very close relationship. And Ananda's role during the time that the Buddha was teaching was the role of his helper and attendant. One day, Ananda came to the Buddha and said, you know, cousin or venerable sir, I don't know how he addressed the Buddha. But he said, you know, buddy. (laughs) Okay, so the Buddha suggested that we actually teach in the vernacular the people. So in that spirit, buddy. I've heard somewhere along the line that wise spiritual friends are fully half of the spiritual life. And there are many conversations that have this kind of cadence with Buddha and Ananda. And the Buddha said, not so, Ananda, not so. Can you imagine being chastised by the Buddha? You're wrong. (laughs) He said, absolutely not. Wise friends are 100% of the spiritual path. They're the whole of the holy life. So maybe you don't have time to meditate every day. Maybe it's your first time at Spirit Rock and you never come back. But perhaps you start to look at, how can I give a little extra attention, valuing to the people in my life that bring out my best qualities and I support them bringing out theirs? And that's your spiritual path and that's plenty. What if we did that on a planetary level? Change everything. Here at Spirit Rock, we have a a wonderful program that's called Kalyanamita. Kalyanamita is the Pali or the old language for the word spiritual friends. And they're peer-led groups that anybody can develop. There's information on our website. You can go look it up. Occasionally, we have day-longs here where people who've started what we call a KM group or a spiritual friends group come together and talk about what they're doing. Maybe you get together two people or three people or six people. You listen to a talk online. You share a little bit about how you're living the practice in your life. Very simple but powerful. Because on one hand, we need venues like Monday nights We've been going on for 35 years now, give or take, longer, maybe 40 years. Every single Monday night, you know that you can come here. And this is a large venue. On the other hand, we need places where we can sit and circle together and really be able to share from our hearts and our truth and hear what other people are doing. So it's not just one teacher's voice saying, this is how it is. Because in fact, every one of us that comes on a Monday night and shares our experience of the spiritual path is just one voice. So admirable friendship, the first one. The second thing that leads to awakening, celebrating our basic integrity. And this is a type of integrity that acknowledges our humanness. It acknowledges what we have done that we wish that we hadn't and what we haven't done that we wish that we had. 
underneath all that complexity, there are the seeds of basic integrity that we have as humans. For some of us, we had the privilege to be raised in circumstances, in families, in education systems, in neighborhoods, in cultures, where those seeds were really nurtured in some way or another. And then for many of us, there were other ways that those seeds of basic integrity were not nurtured, and we've actually had to take a journey, and it's a journey of trial and error, uh, which is the whole practice of basic integrity. In the 12-step tradition, there's a, a teaching that says progress, not perfection. And when we're engaging basic integrity as a practice, it's very much in that spirit. Yeah. A practice, a training, an exploration, a way to be curious about our thoughts, words, and actions. I wanted to give a very 2016 example of basic integrity in, in action. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the traditional trainings. But this is one I love. And it came out in the Huffington Post, and it was based on a post online somewhere. And it was sharing a random act of kindness that happened in 2012. Perhaps you read about this because, in fact, the photo posted with it has been viewed over a million times. This is very reassuring to me. Because on one hand, we have the compulsion to read yet another tra tragic headline in the news. We're called to it. On the other hand, there's something in us that's called to a random act of kindness and to spend our time and energy receiving that and nurturing that in ourselves. Here's the photo. The photo was of a truck. And this truck... You could even see it in the photo. It had four extremely bald tires. But the main part of the photo was a note that was taped on the window of this truck. And here's what the note said. You do not know me, but I saw that you needed some tires for your truck. And I wanted to do something nice for a stranger because one day a stranger did something nice for me. The receipt is in the envelope, and all you have to do is go by Warehouse Tire on 3rd Street and ask for Stephen Hodges, and they will be put on for free. All I ask is one day you do something nice for a complete stranger. So there was, think about the actual scenario of this. There's a truck parked on the street. We see a lot of trucks parked on a lot of streets in our lives, and mostly we don't actually take them in because we're on autopilot. There's a truck on the street. There had to be enough mindfulness to actually take in that truck in the situation of the bald tires. So perhaps that person walking by had to slow down a little bit to take that in. And then there's that impulse that we've had thousands of times in our lives. We see something, and the impulse arises. I wonder if there's something I could do. How many times do we squash that impulse because we're too busy, we don't want to interfere, we're lost in our own story? And then there are the precious moments when the impulse arises and we realize, this is my moment. This is my moment to see, to care, and to respond. 
and we respond. And that's what happened. And this is a tremendous act of generosity. I mean, we all know four tires are not cheap. But it's not about the amount of generosity or even which act of generosity. It's about being able to see, care, and respond in the appropriate way. And that is really allowing our seeds of basic integrity to shine forth. Now, the first time that I told this story, because I really, it's been an inspiration to me. I, th I think about this a lot, like when my mood gets kind of low and I just need to uplift a little bit. I think about the photo and the node and, and the guy that I'll never meet and whoever it was that owned the truck. And the first time I told this story, somebody came up to me afterwards and told me another story with a different perspective. It was very interesting to me. So what they said was, you know, I had a truck, and at one point, my tires got so bald that I actually rolled through a stop sign. I could have killed somebody. And he said, because that happened, um, and I felt so bad, and I immediately went and got new tires, when I heard the story, my first response was anger. And this person thought to, to themselves, this person could have killed someone with those bald tires. And he said, you know, if I had seen those bald tires, I wouldn't have put a note and paid for the tires. I would have turned them into the police because I don't want anybody to be harmed. And what he said was, after I heard the end of the story, uh, I realized that there was more than one response available. We both acknowledged that his response, based on the particular conditions and, and deep caring about not causing harm, made some sense. But the wake-up was, wow, we can walk by a truck, we can hear a story, we can be touched by life and have more than one response to it. That response is fueled by our basic integrity. Whether it's in the foreground or whether it's underneath a massive cloud cover. So when we see someone saying or doing something unskillful, do we judge them? Or do we help them? Huge question. What is the appropriate response? And there's no actual answer. We're not going to get it right. It's the deep listening and nurturing the seeds of our basic integrity so that we can trust the capacity to see, care, and respond. The traditional trainings in non-harming and basic integrity are these. They're ones that a lot of us practice every day. When we go on retreat up the hill, we practice them. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we can undertake the training to not take life, to not intentionally take life, or to cause physical harm. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we can undertake the training to not take what is not offered to us, which is a lot more nuanced than just not stealing. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we can undertake the training to be wise and careful with our sexuality, with our words, and with the use of intoxicants that cloud the mind. These are all trainings that support our basic integrity to shine forth. poem from Kabir. 
Oh, mind, you carry on your back your actions like a heavy sack. No wonder that your shoulders ache. Another strains enough to break your neck. So drop the stupid load. This is the last stop on the road where you can find rest. Stay. Be love's guest. We can actually drop the load of our guilt of former quote-unquote misdeeds and just embrace the moment. What's the appropriate response now? That's what we have right now. Carrying the load is not helpful. I know. I carried a lot of loads for many years. And I'm sure many of us have. So we have admirable friends, celebrating basic integrity. The third is hearing the Dhamma. Or how about a different way of relating to it? Being open to receiving the truth as we understand it. So one of the teachers I trained with from Asia was very fond of laughing at us Western meditators. And he would just laugh and laugh. And, and the translation would come through, you know, you all, you meditate too much. Why are you meditating so much? Don't you know that people wake up just as often through hearing the teachings as with all this meditation that you're doing? Ha, 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 you know. You just, you, you think it's all about meditation. And yes, meditation is an extremely important training. But again, what was he inviting us into? There's more. There's more. So this is from the Buddha. And it's about five rewards in listening to the teachings. And I'd like you to listen to them and see which five rewards, maybe one or two of them, you go, oh, yeah, I connect with that. That's happened for me before, or it's happening for me right now. There are these five rewards in listening to the Dhamma. Which five? Number one, one hears what one has not heard before. Number two, One clarifies what one has heard before. Number three, one transforms doubt, which I have to say is a process that sometimes includes having more doubt as part of the process. Important to acknowledge that. Number four, one's views are made straight. Number five, one's mind grows serene, more peaceful. So maybe one of those is true for you tonight. Maybe you hadn't heard the tire story before. One has heard what one has not heard before, right? I I always laugh. I I teach full time and I teach all over the country. And and so often somebody will come up to me later and give an hour long talk. And some little aside that I said was totally their takeaway. Often it was something I didn't even intend to say. They go, that was it. And I just think, oh, right. We sit up here and talk for an hour so that you can take away one thing. So don't give yourself a hard time if you think, I can't even remember the list. Just one thing is fine. So one of the things that I'm passionate about in this world is beyond the formal teachings. We come to a center like Spirit Rock or other centers that we go to, and we listen to kind of a little bit more formal teachings. I'm on the lookout for Dhamma everywhere. The way that these teachings reflect in our lives, in our culture, everywhere. 
no part left out. I encourage you to uh, explore that if it brings you delight. And so I just thought I'd bring in a couple of pieces under the title, The Dhamma is Everywhere, that I've run into recently. They're very ordinary. When I drive, a lot of us have mindfulness or loving-kindness practice when we drive. Hands on the wheel is awareness is a really helpful thing when we're going at high speeds. Or the loving-kindness of instead of all this traffic, forgetting that actually we're part of the traffic, we can just extend, oh, we're all in a hurry, there's much frustration here, may we all be well, may we all be get there on time, may we all be safe. Totally different attitude of mind, this Bay Area traffic, and I know. It's not easy. So one of the things I like to do for mindfulness practice while I drive is look at bumper stickers and just see, where's the Dhamma? So recently, I was driving from where I lived to Sacramento, and I stopped at a stoplight, and there it was, the bumper sticker. The bumper sticker said this, anything can happen. I thought, ah, that's good Dhamma. It was also a really good light into the environment of my mind in that moment. Because in that moment, my first response to the bumper sticker, anything can happen, was to open to what I call how things are pregnant with possibility. It's wide open. And the delight of that, the expansiveness of that. Now, if the environment of my mind had been different in that moment, I might have looked at the same bumper sticker and went, oh my gosh, anything can happen, and it does, like disaster, any moment. So it's not just mindfulness wake-up bells. It's a wake-up bell into the actual environment of our mind. What is the mood that's coloring our mind in this moment? I got to see that through the bumper sticker. One of my favorite Dharma talks this fall actually wasn't by a Dharma teacher at all. It was a talk on aging by Isabel Allende, one of our local luminary novelists, and I love her work. And I was listening to a talk from her that was like, this is incredible Dhamma. And it was on aging. And she started the talk by walking out on stage, and there were clearly a few thousand people there. And she walked out, and it was a very formal setting. And what burst out of her mouth is, I'm 71 years old. <laughs> and then she laughed. And then everybody else laughed. And then 2,000 people started clapping. I thought, what a wonderful thing in a culture that um, has a habit of putting our elderly away where they can't be seen. We're celebrating the natural process of aging. So my favorite line from her talk was this. Letting go is great. I should have started long ago. <laughs> I thought, oh, what a great reminder. Oh, I can start now. I can remember now. I can continue now. It's just these little one-liners that are floating around in the midst of the rest of the chaos of our culture at this time. If we have the eyes to see, they can teach us. They can be wake-up calls. So, admirable friends celebrating basic integrity, uh, hearing the Dhamma. The fourth is wise effort. So 
The way that the Pali word is translated into wise effort is probably not the best translation into modern English because we have a tendency based on our cultural conditioning in part to think that effort means push, try harder, do more, be better. And that's not what this is referring to at all. There are four pieces to wise effort, so yet another list. <laughs> Dear Buddha, he just loved his list. So I want to look at it from a couple perspectives as an introduction, and one is the medical model. So from a medical model perspective, um, working with health and dis-ease or disease, sometimes we'll talk about the, the first noble truth as being you know, it's not easy being a human being living a life. There are periods of dis-ease. So on one side, we have preventative medicine. We can cultivate things that help our minds, our speech, and our actions in advance, the same way that we brush our teeth. Not because we necessarily love to do that once or twice or three times a day, but because it's really good preventative medicine. We know it leads to the direction we want to move in in regards to our teeth. Well, our minds aren't so different. So we have preventative medicine. And then when things arise in our thoughts, words, and actions that aren't so helpful, we can actually transform them. We can change the channel, and there are tools to do that. Then we can also cultivate things that are helpful. And when we notice that things are helpful are actually manifesting in our thoughts, words, and actions, we can delight in that and celebrate. So sort of a medical model, <laughs> loosely speaking. How many of you have kayaked or canoed in your life? Oh, a whole bunch of you. Okay, so hopefully this will work. I got this from somebody who sat a retreat with me where I was talking about this wise effort, and they were a kayaker. And they said, oh my goodness, wise effort is the four instructions that I got when I learned to kayak. I thought, I said, oh great, what are they? And so they wrote them down for me. Here are the four instructions. Stay out of trouble, number one. Okay, so think about it. You're moving down the river of life. Your mind's moving down the river. Your kayak or your canoe's moving down the river. Stay out of trouble. Just don't go there. Number two, know what to do if you get in trouble. I mean, I haven't... I just learned how to kayak actually in the last five years, so I'm still a novice. But it's like you start to get into trouble, you know, oh, you do this with the oar this way and you balance it that way, you've got tools. Know what to do if you get in trouble. Same with the mind. Number three, develop good habits in kayaking or in your mind. Number four, keep them going. Okay? So it's pretty straightforward, um, but easier said than done. So then I was thinking of an example. And I'm noticing, as you probably are too, that this particular period of time on our planet, there seems to be an increasing awareness about certain kinds of difficulties. And these difficulties actually aren't new. But the awareness individually and collectively rises and falls in cycles. And there's certain ways that certain things are getting extreme enough that awareness collectively and individually is rising. 
So I was thinking about working with wise effort in relation to the shock or maybe just the moment of receiving difficult news on a wider level. Receiving difficult news, especially when it's bigger than us and our nearest and dearest, can either shut us down or wake us up. And often a little bit of cycling of both because it's a process. So whether you were moved by the attacks in Paris, whether you were moved by the attacks in San Bernardino, whether your heart had a response to the results of the recent climate change talks, just to name a few things that are definitely on a scale of difficulty right now. And the thing is, is that as awareness increases, we understand that these things have been going on, but awareness is increasing. It's really, really an invitation to begin to bring these qualities to bear. How do we stay out of trouble when somebody starts talking about a certain religion, a certain group of people, politics? How do we stay out of trouble? We need to know in advance because it gets too charged too fast. So obviously this is a whole nother talk and a whole nother training that lasts our whole lives. But I just want to drop in a few possibilities and maybe it will be a catalyst for you remembering what your own tools already are because in fact we have them. It's not actually that hard to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful, especially when things are intense. So we can wake up. When we're staying out of trouble, what are we doing? When we're in trouble, reactivity has just grown. I talk about it like we start climbing up the ladder of reactivity. It starts with a single thought and all of a sudden we're in a snit, we're totally upset, we're yelling at somebody or somebody else is yelling at us. It's just gone up the ladder of reactivity. That reduces our clarity, our compassion, and our ability to respond. And if our practice is to see, care, and respond, then we want to be able to work with that. So on the preventative side, or being able to change the channel or transform if something isn't so helpful, things that happen to us commonly in the face of the real difficulties on this planet at this time, dissociation, despair, rage that's ineffective. Because I actually think that the energetic itself of anger when it's not glued together with tremendous reactivity, can move us forward in the work that needs to happen on the planet. But it has to be unglued from the reactivity so that we can have the clarity and the appropriate response. So then we're actually moving it as an energy instead of me and my anger and the outcome that has to be there in order for it to all be okay. So what helps this? One of the things that helps this is really, really simple, but we forget, is the body is a grounding rod. So I just finished teaching the Metta Retreat. The Metta Retreat is a week-long loving-kindness training that I teach every year. I've been teaching for many years. A couple of you were there. And at one point in the retreat there was a talk and one of my colleagues was talking about reading the news as a practice. And he mentioned there are times that I see a headline And as soon as I read the headline, it's like my eyes just slip off the page 
or off the screen to something else? How do we have enough sense of the body, enough mindfulness to notice those moments, enough grounding to be able to meet that thing that makes our eyes slide off the page? And how do we have the discernment to know this is not a wise time to read that because actually I'm already anxious and overfull and I'm not going to be able to take it in a respectful way. Only we can know that deep inside. That's why mindfulness training is so important. So it's simple things like when I see the headline and I notice metaphorically or literally my eyes moving off the screen or off the page, I do two things. I take a deeper breath. Taking a deeper breath settles the nervous system. And you think about it, it's, it's actually wisdom that's been passed down from generations. In previous generations, when somebody was upset, sometimes we still say this. We go, oh, you're upset. Take a breath. It's okay. That's wisdom. We can offer that wisdom and action to ourselves in the face of the difficulties in the world. And we can take a deeper breath, and then I feel my feet. Why do I do that? Because I'm bringing the attention into the body. We know from the science of the nervous system and mindfulness that reactive, reactive, anxious types of energy tend to move up, and then they stay up. Even though we think that we've moved on, it stays up. If we bring our attention down into our feet or our hands, it reminds the system to settle. In that settling, then there's receptivity to meet the next thing that comes, and it's gonna come. So I'm really interested in simple practices that can be done repeatedly. That's a practice that I probably do a hundred times a day. It's a baseline mindfulness practice because we live in a world where things can be startling and overwhelming. So I do it when I'm not startled and overwhelmed to develop resiliency and presence in the body. I do it when I do feel startled. And it's not as if I count 59, 60, taking a breath, feeling my feet. It's just a baseline practice. So I would guess that in a group this size, there's a few of us feeling anxious, and there's a few of us feeling like the day was a little bit too much, and there's a few of us feeling kind of more on the resilient side and peaceful. But whether it's preventative or actually settling, why don't we just all try it as a practice? We'll take a deeper breath. And then as long as your feet don't hurt, feel your feet for a moment. If your feet hurt, feel your hands. Just see, are they warm or cool, vibrating, numb? They're like this. And then we move on to the next thing. So I call little practices like that stealth dharma because nobody knows we're doing them. You you can do it in a meeting. You can do it in traffic. You can do it with family members. You can just do it. Maybe you take less of a deep breath if you're in the middle of a meeting. But you can... Still take that breath knowing the intention behind why you're taking it. So if we're working with wise effort in relationship to meeting difficult situations and difficult news, especially on a wider scale, but also in our personal lives, there's an important piece about, um, I talk about it as titrating, the amount that we're taking in. So titrating works on the premise that less is more. I would much rather take a full moment or period of time in presence, be able to see, care, and respond 
with one article about some of the difficulties happening in Syria, for example, then read 25 of them and be pretty much not there the entire time. Less is more. It's the quality of awareness and presence that counts. Another way of talking about it is we bite-size it. So if somebody's going on and on and on about the political situation and we notice our eye are getting caught and all of a sudden we're feeling tight in our bodies and it just feels like it's never going to end and we're getting reactive and we're about to say that thing that we know is just not going to help the dynamic. Another great stealth dharma practice is a restroom break. Say, hold that thought. I'm going to go use the restroom. And I go in the restroom and I take a breath and I feel my feet. Maybe I use the restroom, maybe I don't. If I'm really, really feeling it, I wash my face. I wish myself well. Look myself in the mirror, I wish myself well. Nobody has ever asked me, why are you going to the bathroom? Okay? It's simple. Less is more. In the ways that we can titrate it, we do. And in the situations where we can't, we realize, well, you know, I'll just give it the best I've got, knowing that it's a little too much and it's probably going to be not my best. Can we forgive ourselves in advance for not always being our best? That's a practice of wise effort that's preventative. I've had periods of time where I've woken up in the morning and the first thing I've done is say, Heather, I forgive myself in advance for the inevitable unskillful speech that I'm going to make today. That brings such a different attitude of mind. It relaxes our perfectionism so that we can be more authentic and just, you know, stretch a little and not beat ourselves up so much when inevitably we say that thing that was bad timing. Sincere intention maybe, but bad timing. Whatever it is. So at all stages of wise effort, stay out of trouble, know what to do if you get in trouble, develop good habits, keep them going. Talk about this practice as feeling the heart of the situation. And it's a three breaths model. So something happens, it startles you maybe, or you feel the pain of it maybe. This is the model. We don't have to be completely open. We can be as open or closed as we are. But we can take three breaths with whatever it is that just happened and however we're feeling about it. Feel it and keep caring. Even if the caring is caring about all the defenses that just arose to protect me from something I can't handle right now. We bring the caring right there. And so it's a three-breast model. These days, you know, I'm on the lookout for suffering. My own interpersonal, collective, the world. And when I see it, one of the first things I do is take three breaths with it as it is, and my response to it, as it is, see, care. And then I look, I say, oh, within my circle of influence in this moment, is there an appropriate response that needs to happen? Thoughts, words, or actions? We each have a circle of influence. We have many circles of influence. We can see, we can care, and we can respond within our circle of influence. We're not going to save the world single-handedly. We may not even be the visionary that Dr. King was. But we have our circle of influence, and we can see and care and respond. Okay, so we've got wise friends, 
celebrating the seas of integrity, hearing the Dhamma, wise effort. The last one is in harmony with change, in harmony with impermanence. In my early years of meditation, I was a participant here on Monday nights. Got some basic meditation instructions here and didn't really understand most of what was being shared from up front, but it felt reassuring, so I just kept coming back and I learned little by little this and that. And then after um, a number of years, I was privileged enough to be able to work on staff here, actually for a decade. And my job was the director and the teacher for the family program here, which is still going, and the team program here, which is still going. So actually, I did my hardest years of meditation teaching first, because I really have to say, you all are such a, a kind and receptive audience. When I would teach family retreats where there were 125 people, ages 5 to 80, if I wasn't interesting, they'd riot. If I wasn't clear, they'd start you know, messing around with everything. This is so much easier. <laughs> And so for many years, when Jack was teaching down here, I was teaching up in the yurt. And during those years, the Monday night children's program happened every Monday night, not just during the summer like it does now. And so for six years, every Monday night, I took these same teachings that we're hearing, he that we're hearing here and said, okay, how's a six-year-old going to relate to that? We would do council practice every Monday night. We would pass the talking piece. And each child would choose to share or not to share. The hardest practice suggestion for that council was please don't crosstalk so that everyone had room to be heard and somebody else wasn't talking over them or around them or through them. And I remember one time I thought, you know, this experience of being in harmony with impermanence and the teaching of change has been so valuable to the freeing of my heart and mind. I really want to bring this in to the kids in their elementary school age, kindergarten through sixth or seventh grade, give or take. I really want to bring this in. And so I did like a whole month-long series on it. We developed games about change and counsel about change and snack about change and on and on and on the way you do with kids. <laughs> but I remember the first counsel. And the counsel question was, everything changes. What changes for you? And I didn't know whether they'd be able to come up with anything because I had this idea that like, ooh, change, it's this subtle meditation practice that you have to go on long retreats to be able to understand. I think I was sitting too many long retreats at that point. I got a little confused. Anyway, the first kid took the stick and they said, everything changes, my tooth fell out. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> The next kid took the talking stick and said, everything changes. I got a haircut. Do you like it? And then we had to really work on not cross-talking because, of course, everybody wanted to give their opinion about their haircut. See, this was much easier. Um, and then I remember another child around the circle who had been kind of withdrawn uh, said, you know, everything changes. My dog died last week. And you just felt the murmur around the circle. Everyone understood. Whether they had a dog or not, whether they'd lost a dog or not, everyone understood. We understand that sometimes change is delightful, 
and sometimes it leads to grief and everything in between. So there's a teaching from the Buddha that I like to practice with in regards to these uh, very important themes like change, like impermanence. And it's three parts, another list. (laughs) If you go home and somebody goes, how was Monday night? You can just say it was all lists. (laughs) So the first piece when we're engaging a teaching like this that is very obvious on one hand and is also can become quite subtle on the other hand, the first thing that we might do is reflect on it. When I say everything changes, how does it work for you? You probably come up with an example. We reflect. Oh, here's an example. Here's how I feel when I think of that example. So we can reflect. That's actually part of our spiritual path. And I want to mention it because it's easy to think that like we're here to stop thinking and just follow our breath. In fact, we're here to become in conscious relationship with the thinking as a process so that it can inform us instead of run our lives unconsciously. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll think incessantly for the entire commute about this person. Okay? It's, it's, we're not in relationship with the storytelling at that point. We're developing a relationship. Once we develop a relationship, we can reflect wisely and use it as a tool. Second, we have the direct experience in this case of change, and we all have. And if we pass the talking stick here, each one of us would have a story that would be an inspiration and a catalyst for all of us to feel change and the impact of that. The thing is, we know this intellectually. Change is constant. So what can we check and see in our direct experience just now? What is changing right now? That knowing is a direct experience. It's not conceptual. The third piece is sometimes translated as knowing what we know. It's acknowledging that we have inherent wisdom, that those kids, they knew how to respond to the question, each in their own authentic way. And when we have direct experiences of change, and it touches us and it informs us, we can know that understanding. So on one side, there are certain things about change that um, are losses that we have to experience the grief of. But I want to focus primarily in this moment on celebrating the law of impermanence. Why would it be helpful to begin to track moment by moment, subtly in our bodies, subtly in our thoughts, out there in our world, change? How does it lead to deepening insight? It's definitely a doorway into the Dhamma or into understanding the nature of things as they are. One of the things that really supported me to continue coming here to Spirit Rock and made me understand that the spiritual path needed to be a priority in my life was actually the long-term illness concluded by the death of my mother when I was quite young. And it was really hard. 
And out of that journey that I took with her, taking care of her, being with her as she passed, there was, you know, in some ways you could say her parting gift was an illumination. This is real. Again, we tend to hide death behind closed doors. This is real. So how do I want to open this mind and this heart and be in relation to the aliveness that's here? Because it's temporary and it's precious. It was a huge catalyst for me to deepen my spiritual training. In fact, the law of impermanence is what allows the spiritual path to progress. Because without change, we couldn't grow. Without change, we couldn't learn. We'd be stuck, static, right where we are. Impermanence is a refuge. In another wisdom tradition, it is said, something happens and we say, this too shall pass. It's reassuring to remember that this too shall pass. We don't know when, we don't know how. It could get worse before it gets better. But this too shall pass. Impermanence can be a refuge that way. We can be grateful when the difficult ceases, to not miss that moment. And certainly, impermanence invites us into the moment. We can be curious about change. It's a wonderful catalyst for curiosity. Because change is actually happening so rapidly that we have to bring a lot of curiosity to it to access it. There's the obvious levels of change, but then there's like the amazingness of this humanness in our whole world, the human systems. Being curious, like, what's it like to live in a vibrating, fluctuating world? With change, we get to directly experience the potential of being a human being living a life. So I thought I'd close with a poem from Ed Brown, Zen teacher who sometimes teaches here. He says, now I take the time to peel potatoes, wash lettuce and boil beets, to scrub floors, clean sinks, and empty trash. Absorbed in the everyday, I find time to unbind, unwind, to invite the whole body, mind, breath, thought, and wild impulse to join, to bask in the task. No time lost thinking that somewhere else is better. No time lost imagining getting, some, getting more elsewhere. No way to tell this moment does not measure up. Hand me the spatula. Now is the time to taste what is. So that is what I have to offer for reflection. And I do genuinely thank you for um, the kindness and being a much easier audience than elementary school children up in the yard. <laughs> it is our tradition in this community to end the evening with a chant. And so I thought we would do one on impermanence and the joy that comes when we're in harmony with impermanence. So I'll chant it once in the old language of Pali. If you happen to know it, feel free to join in. I'm not going to teach it and keep it simple. And then we'll chant three times in the English, which is all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. So we'll do it call and response twice. And then the last time, the third time, we'll do it all together. 
and then we'll go out into the night and may you travel safely. So I like to put my hands in front of my heart um, as a gesture of calling the heart into the foreground, but it's absolutely not required here at Spirit Rock. It's only if it moves your heart. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upakitu aniuchanti te sanupasamo suko. All things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth. To be in harmony with this truth. Brings great happiness. Brings great happiness. All things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth. Brings great happiness. Brings great happiness. Together, all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. So, breathing in the great happiness. I'm breathing it out. May all beings benefit from our deepening understanding and the happiness that comes from being in harmony with the truth as we understand it. Thank you for your presence here and thank you for your practice. Definitely until we meet again, whether at Mountain Stream Meditation Center in the foothills or back here on another Monday night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.